Welcome everyone to the DS30 podcast. Uh, my name is Michael Cullen. And I'm Ana Cochibar. And today we're going to be talking with Michael Mace, the VP of Market Strategy at User Testing. Yes, and uh, Mike is actually a veteran in the industry. He's been in the tech industry for several decades. So we could talk to him about so many things. Uh, but one of the things that Mike is in charge of at user testing is the quantum qual research they do there. So we are going to talk to him about uh, how we can use that to gain business insights, in particular during the time of COVID. So let's jump right in. Michael Mace, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So um, maybe uh, we'd like to start our podcast with having our guests introduce themselves first. So um, do you want to tell us just a little bit about yourself and uh, your career path? Sure. So um, I am a VP of market strategy at a company called User Testing. Um, and uh, my role includes understanding how our market is changing and talking with industry analysts and talking about trends and things like that. So I'm, I'm really delighted to be talking with both of you today. Um, I should admit my career background is almost entirely in the tech industry. Um, I started off way back a long time ago as a software developer, not a terribly successful software developer, by the way, but, but I did it a little bit. Out of that, I got a job at Apple um, and ended up working there for about 10 years in a variety of uh, different roles, a lot of them related to market research, competitive stuff, market strategy, other things like that. Um, I've done some startup stuff. I've worked at some other companies. I was at Palm, the handheld computing guys uh, for about six years and, and so did a lot of that and some consulting and other stuff. And now I've been with user testing for about uh, seven years, which has been really fun. The company's grown from about 30 people to over 500 in the time I've been there. So it's been, it's been really, really exciting to work on this, this kind of new form of research and helping to bring that to folks. Oh, yeah, that does sound very exciting. And, you know, with regards to that uh, new form of research, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about what it is that you're doing at user testing? Yep. So um, user testing started off in its early days as a way for web developers to get really, really, really fast feedback on the designs that they were doing. So picture yourself doing an e-commerce site and you wanna make sure that the changes you're making to the checkout flow are not going to cause people to leave the site. Um, you can very rapidly um, uh, say, okay, here's the flow that I want to test. You can come to us and say, I wanna test it on this sort of people, these demographics, those other characteristics. Um, we've got a panel, huge panel of people already uh, pre-vetted with recording software installed on their devices, which will record the screen and their voice, and you can get pictures of them as well. So you say, here's what I want you to do. Here's the demographics that I need. We automatically deploy that out to people who are matches in the panel. They record themselves doing it. You get the recordings back within about one to two hours. So think very, very fast feedback from people on stuff that you're working on in real time within a sprint so that you can make well-informed decisions without slowing down your development process. So that's been the core of the company. What's happened over the years is that people have realized that they can use us for other types of things. So basically, even though it was designed originally for website testing, you can use it to ask people res to respond to any sort of prompt. It could be, hey, I want you to read this document and tell me what you think. 
or it could be, I want you to watch this video and, and tell me how you're reacting. Or even just, here's a list of questions, I want you to answer them. So, so you can do kind of self-guided interviews where you don't have a moderator, so there's no bias to it. They're just talking confessionally to their computer or their smartphone and recording themselves and sending that stuff back. So, so think of it as just a generalized way to get feedback on just about anything within a couple of hours when you need to make a better informed decision in real time. That's, that's what it's kind of evolving into. Wow, okay. And especially with that time scale, I mean, getting those results back so quickly, I mean, I can definitely see why people are excited about that. Yep. I want to touch on something you mentioned, which was the, um, you know, with regards to the, um, you know, web design, um, getting the recordings of people. Could you speak to how, how that differs or how that informs the sorts of insights we get compared to maybe just an A-B test or more? Yeah. It's, it's definitely not a replacement for any of those things. You know, looking at your analytics is really important. Doing the A-B test is really, really important. What this can do is help you out in a couple ways. Um, number one, it can give you the context for what's happening in what you see in your analytics or your A-B tests. So, okay, I know option B1, but do I really understand why? Do, do I know for sure? I can guess, you know, I'll have my own theory, but you don't really know. And that makes it hard then to do the next iteration because you're not sure what it was really keying off of. Um, in your analytics, a lot of times you'll find, oh, people are getting to the third screen and then they're dropping out. Oh my goodness, we've got a problem. We've got to go fix that. But what do we fix? You know, and you could end up running a ton of different experiments before you get it right. You'll form a, oh, here's, here's one thesis. Let me try this. And you know, if, if that's a part of your site or your app that's not getting that much traffic, it may take a while for your test of what you want to try to fix before you even get statistically significant results. And if you have to iterate several times, it can get really frustrating. So what you can do with user tests is you can say, okay, I've just identified, I know that I've got an issue. Let me go have some people just go through that flow on the site or let me take them to the third screen or something like that. And then you say to them, okay, when you get to this point, I want you to just think out loud. Tell me what you're seeing. Tell me what you're thinking. How do you react about this? Um, uh, and very often it'll let you form a better hypothesis about what's broken. Mm -hmm. So you can move much more rapidly to the fix. Mm -hmm. Or if it's an A-B test, what people will sometimes do is they'll say, well, we've got five options that we might be able to test, but good grief, if we test with five variants, it's gonna take way longer to get results because we're spreading the sample across more of them. I wish I could figure out which two were the most promising and just test those first. Well, run a quick user test. You're only gonna do it with 10 to 20 people. So it's not gonna be like the final conclusive thing that you want, but you can get a great idea of which two look the most promising. Or maybe this particular one is very promising, but they hate one piece about it. If we just fix that, that, that might be the overall winner. You know, Let's try doing that first. So it's all that contextual stuff about how are people mm. thinking? Why are you getting the quant results that you're getting? So pairing the two together in the right way makes both of them a lot more powerful and basically lets you, lets you move faster with, with better information. So yeah, Mike, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, something you mentioned there, the, the context you get from those recordings. I think, you know, even with a well-designed, you know, quantitative experiment, you know, getting statistical significance, uh, you know, we can get a lot of cause and effect, but I think you're right. We don't get that context with the qualitative research. Yep. I'm very curious about the uh, 
quantitative versus qualitative and what sort of data is behind that? So in the sense you were talking about videos and then maybe surveys, possibly uh, looking at people's behavior on a website, analyzing at uh, clicks. So can you talk just a little bit more specifically about the data that your sort of methodology produces and how each of that ties into the qualitative or quantitative part? Yeah, great question. So um, what we do is we've got uh, recorder software that's resident on all of their devices. So if they're doing a test that asks them to go to a particular website, we will first of all record everything that's uh, going on the screen. Um, we will record their voice and we encourage them, we coach them to think out loud, to say what their thoughts are as they're doing everything. And if they don't do that, you can rate them low on your feedback and we'll remove them from the panel because we really need people who will do that sort of stuff. We also do a lot of metrics in the background on what they're doing. So we'll track things like clicks and click paths and which URLs they go to and all of that sort of stuff. So that you as a researcher can then come back and you can watch the videos. You can read a transcript of their uh, spoken comments. If you want to jump to a particular point in the video, you can click in the transcript and, and do that sort of stuff. But you also can look at all of the, the metrics that were assembled to understand, oh, exactly, where did they go in this particular test? So it's, and you can also ask them questions. So if you wanna ask like basic survey questions, like a rating scale or something like that, you can do that as well. So it's all designed to capture this rich data, but also make it hopefully as easy as possible for you to then parse through it. So, because it's tedious to watch videos of people doing stuff. You know, you could, hey, say you did a 15 minute test and you run it on 10 people. Well, that's 150 minutes. That's quite a big uh, contribution of your time. So we try to make it easy to jump to the individual pieces that you really need to get to in order to get your answer. With regards to those, those tests, those surveys and recordings, what sorts of sample sizes are people usually coming to user testing looking for? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You usually want to do it with a what you would think of as a small sample, you know, compared to a quantitative survey. So, a quant survey, um, you would, uh, you know, you want to do hundreds of participants, preferably thousands. Um, with this sort of stuff, that would be gross overkill because you're never going to watch a thousand videos of people doing stuff. And furthermore, you need to you need to pay them for their time. And so the sampling cost would be absolutely enormous. So typically what our customers will do is they'll be anywhere in the range of five to 15, uh, something like that. And what that does is for, it's not statistically significant. We don't try to pretend that it is. Um, there are ways you can sync this up with quant research if you want to do that. But um, what it's for, think of it the same way as you'd use a focus group. You use it to understand the overall issues, how do people think, and it'll also surface any big issues. Like if there's a big usability problem, I guarantee it'll show up in 15 people. You know, you won't be able to say what percent of your users run into this problem, but you'll know, oh, a bunch of people are going to run into this problem. We got to fix it. And very often that's all you need to know. Um, so, so think of it as a rapid way to scout the landscape um, and get the general feel of what's happening. So, you know, this hybrid approach or this sort of hierarchical approach where we take some qualitative research on small samples, so we can get some really broad insights major issues. Um, from there, you say, you know, sometimes we go towards the more quantitative, you know, start having surveys with larger sample sizes. How do you see these methods of research 
relating to you know some of the really cutting edge you know, data scientific analytics or um, artificial intelligence? What's the interplay you see here? Yeah, we're still figuring that out as an industry, aren't we? It's it's been really interesting to see how that's developed. Um, so I think they've each got their important roles to play. Um, and the trick is understanding which ones to use at which times. Um, what I, I don't mean this to sound like I'm criticizing anybody because each one of those things are wonderful. But I think as overall as an industry, we've become so fascinated by the analytics, the, the immediacy of them, the convenience of them, the incredible detail that you can get that we tend sometimes to overcorrect uh, toward that stuff. And um, analytics are incredibly wonderful. I use them all the time. But if you do it too much, it can lead you to start treating people as if they're kind of robots. You know, you're looking for conditioned responses out of them. Like if I do this, they will do that. And you start focusing on just the response that you're getting rather than asking the context of why is this happening and what else could that tell me and and what what insights could I could I develop the other thing that sometimes tends to happen is if we if we overfocus on that stuff the fact that we're viewing people as just groups uh, that we can apply certain stimuli to starts to come across to them they they get a feel for it and you'll sometimes hear people getting angry on social media or things like that about how they feel like companies are distanced from them, that they're not really connecting with them as human beings. And I think actually over-reliance on analytics can sometimes cause that to happen. Um, so what excites me about the tools that we've got now is the way it used to be, if you wanted to get qualitative in insights on how people feel, you had to go do these really ponderous research studies. You know, focus groups are incredibly painful to do. It's hard to schedule, they're expensive. If you're doing them right, you've got to travel around to different cities to do that stuff. Being able to get that sort of feedback super fast in the moment within a couple hours, basically the same way you'd be accessing analytics, all of a sudden restores the balance to the force. You know, it, um, uh, it, it lets you pair these very human insights where you can develop empathy with people, empathy for your customers. And you can pair that with the data about how they're behaving. And it, it, it doesn't just make you smarter, but it also makes you better at developing a deep relationship with your customers, which especially with everything that's going on in the world right now, there's so much hunger that people have for genuine connections. How do we pull together? I mean, I've been doing research on COVID and the thing that the theme that we hear from people over and over is how do we pull together as a country to help each other get through this? And so that desire for empathy and connection ends up, this is a tool to help to create that within your own team, that sort of emotional understanding and connection. State we find ourselves in, in the world right now, is there anything that you have uh, sort of found that has changed with COVID that, that um, either in the way that you do this research or uh, through doing the research that you have found has changed in the world? Yeah, um, so yes to both of those. Um, number one, um, let's talk about methodology first and let's talk about findings. So um, in terms of methodology, we've been doing some very explicitly designed combinations of quant and qual research on COVID specifically, because so many of our customers have asked us, hey, can you help us understand 
how customers buying patterns and how their, their behaviors are changing because of COVID. And so we've done a couple of quant surveys, big quant surveys, you know, with more than a thousand participants in the US, um, asking them a whole bunch of questions, you know, things like, how do you feel about wearing masks? And are you willing to do this list of activities? You know, are you willing to shop in a store or fly in a plane? How would you feel about that? Getting their quantitative results on all of that. How fearful are you? How do you, you know, how often do you wear masks, et cetera, et cetera. Getting the quant on that and then having them do the same survey. But what we do is we record them with our software while they're doing the survey online. And we have them talk out loud to explain each of those answers. So what that lets us do is we can do this nice chart of here are the quantitative results. Um, here's, the, here's your bar chart that everybody wants to see. But then a video of five minutes of various people saying, here's what I meant when I gave that answer. And we can pick out the ones like, here are the people who were in this area of the bar chart, and here are the people who are over here. And you can understand why, you know, so for instance, masks. Um, I can tell you off the survey, most people in America are willing to wear masks. Um, it's not, we are not split down the middle about masks versus no masks. In fact, the people who are hardcore opposed to masks are only about five to 10% of the population. However, they're very, they're very noisy on social media. And this often happens that the, the people who are at the, at, at the extreme ends of the distribution tend to be highly motivated. And so they're overrepresented on social media. So what you'll read on Twitter and on Facebook, and this isn't just a conservative or liberal thing, it's both ends of the spectrum. You get more stratification and more polarization on social media than actually exists in society. So we actually have a consensus in the country around wearing masks among most of us, but we have a small group of people who are very upset about that issue. And I can also tell you, because we did interviews with them, I can tell you why they're upset. Um, and some of them it's because it's uncomfortable and some of them it's because they have a strong personal moral objection to being given orders by the government. It's not masks. It's they feel that their personal freedom is being trampled in a very invasive personal way. And that's why they get so emotional about it because it's a core issue for those particular people. Um, and so, okay, all right, fine. I think we could have kind of figured that out eventually anyway from all the stuff that we're seeing, but it was neat to be able to go to it quickly. Um, the other thing is it kind of gives you some ideas on then, okay, maybe here's the dialogue that we need to have. Maybe it's not about trying to order them to wear masks. Maybe it's trying to convince them how much pain they're causing to other people by not wearing masks, how much it's frightening them. If we, if we can build a little more empathy around these issues. And that's where I really get excited about this stuff is if we can, if we can make the country a little bit more empathetic and a little bit more sane about some of this stuff, I just feel like maybe it'd make life a little bit easier for all of us. So that's a big ambition for just off of research methodologies, but it's the sort of stuff that's in my mind these days. Well, and I think it's the sort of thing that's on everybody's mind yeah. these days and has been for some time. Um, and even just on the methodological level, finding those, you know, such a difference between what you might observe if you, you know, if you were trying to do more data science analysis, scraping Twitter, for instance, yeah. uh, seeing how that doesn't reflect, you know, maybe a more random sample. I mean, that's very relevant. Uh, and, you know, and, and make, we see this with all kinds of issues. You know, there are a lot of people who um, are probably pretty 
lukewarm and you know, don't care too much either way about whether or not to put pineapple on pizza. You go online and that's not what you see. Yeah, you're completely right. And, and then you'll get the press, unfortunately, treating social media like it's a survey. And it's actually, I shouldn't just say the press. Companies do this as well. How many companies do you know of that have what they call voice of mm -hmm. customer systems, which actually systematically scrapes social media to see what people are saying? And then they act on that stuff. And if you said to them, hey, guys, this sample that you're taking is systematically biased. It's, it's actually overrepresenting the angriest, most polarized people. And if you steer toward that, you actually may alienate most of your customers, or you may put yourself out of touch with most of the population in the country. It's, it's really kind of, once you spot this, you'll start see the, seeing the number of, of press articles, for instance, that mention social media as a, as a source. And it's really kind of spooky. It's a, it's a little bit scary after a while. That's a very good point, yeah. Um, in terms of data and hopefully getting not systematically biased data, I'm curious about um, the data gathered during the pandemic. So in March, we were all saying yeah. we don't have the data for how people behave in a pandemic. So we cannot use our models that predict things or we can't use our sort of usual modus operandi anymore. People now behave differently. Are we starting to have that data? Has it, has it been a long enough time that we all have been <laughs> locked in our apartments? Uh, uh, that, that now there is some data about how people behave during a pandemic. Yep, yep. And actually, we've got two types of data. So, so we have. I can I can tell you with fairly high confidence how people behave during the pandemic itself, um, and and kind of how it's affecting their thinking. And actually, we've been digging really hard on how do they decide what activities they want to do in public and and stuff like that. And I can talk about some of that if you want to. Um, what we don't know is how they're actually going to behave after the pandemic ends. We, we know what they tell us they're going to do, and I can talk about that, but until it actually happens, we don't know for sure. Just like you couldn't be for sure if you asked them, if a pandemic happened before the pandemic, if we asked them, hey, are you gonna be willing to sit at home and be on Zoom all day? I mean, most people would have said, what's Zoom? <laughs> you know, I, I have no idea. And yet we all managed to do it. And by the way, I'm very proud of all of this, all of this that we managed to do it. Um, uh, at the same way, people will tell you what they expect they're going to do once the pandemic is over. By the way, there's going to be a great party. I can't wait for that. We're all going to have a party simultaneously once there's a vaccine. So, um, so they're telling us that they're going to do that. What will they actually do? Hard to say. But definitely we can talk a lot about how the pandemic has changed behaviors today and how people are gonna to continue to behave until the pandemic's over. Oh, all right. And um, you know, and I think like you said, you know, having that context, right? Really like diving in. I mean, it sort of points to, you know, maybe why this mode of research is um, you know, it's not just critical in general, but maybe right now even a little bit more so. Um so maybe wrapping up from there, I mean you know, going forward, whether it's, you know, through the pandemic or, you know, and into the future beyond that, how do you see the future of this, you know, quant and qualitative research combining? I, I think it's like any other new tool um, or technique or whatever phrase you want to use. We're just in the beginnings of the learning curve on what we can do with this thing. And we're still finding, um, people who are figuring out new ways to use it, use it that surprise us all the time. Um, what we're also seeing is it's, and this is a really important thing for research practitioners to be thinking about. So, so I'm glad you asked about this. Um, 
the system makes it easy for non-researchers to be able to do their own, uh, the equivalent of focus groups or interviews very, very rapidly on their own. It's an easy to use system. Um, and that means that in the future, there are gonna be a lot more people who are not researchers who will be going out and doing this themselves. And they need to, because they need real-time feedback and there's no way to work through a professional researcher for all of that. But that raises the possibility that you may have people doing poorly designed interviews, that asking stuff the wrong way, that could be within companies. I mean, it's a big potential fear point for professional researchers of, wait a minute, you just enabled every product manager and marketer in my company to go out and do, and I'm not gonna be in the loop on that, excuse me. Um, and so we're working really hard on, number one, building in a bunch of guardrails that will help protect people who are not researchers from accidentally doing stuff that'll mislead them, but also to give some supervisorial tools for companies and organizations that have research teams that want to be able to track this stuff for them to be able to do that. But it's gonna be a very painful evolution because what it means is that you're gonna have a lot of people who have master's degrees and, and PhDs and methodology and this sort of stuff who are gonna to learn to have to, gonna to have to learn to share control with people who don't. And so how do you turn yourself from being a practitioner to an enabler and supervisor of stuff that people are doing? It is critical for research professionals to be thinking about that very actively now because it's going to happen. You can't stop it. There's too much demand for this. And the good news is I think most folks in the field are aware of this. They know that this is going on. It's the same thing that happened with survey stuff when SurveyMonkey came out but we're gonna need to do this with the qual side of things. And we need to be talking about it now so that we don't get blindsided by it. All right, Michael, thanks so much. Um, we're gonna get wrapped up, but you know, before we do, you mentioned that you know, user testing has been doing this you know, big coronavirus research project um, you know, that people are gonna be able to check out publicly. So you know, where should they be looking? When, they, when should they be looking? Yep, so we are releasing this stuff on July 27th. Um, so you can, it's either, actually, it's either the 27th or the 28th. So let me, let me correct. I believe it's the 27th, but it might be the 28th. Anyway, it is, the, it is that week. It'll be posted on our blog. So if you go, just go to usertesting.com, go to the blog, um, and you'll see references to the COVID-19 research that we've done. Um, we will also be doing a webinar that'll happen early in August. Um, so if you want to see video clips and things like that, you'll be able to get to the video clips straight from the blog post. You'll be also be able to get to a webinar if you want to. And if you look at it and you've got specific questions, I would love to hear from people. So um, I may regret giving my, my email address, but I'll do it anyway. So I'm just Mike at usertesting.com, M-I-K-E. So if when that stuff comes out, if you guys have questions or comments, I would be delighted to hear from you. Um, please, please reach out. Great. Mike, thank you so much. And thank you again for being with us today and sharing all of your experience and everything uh, of great stuff that you do at user testing. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>